From the Carolinas to East Texas, much of the Deep South is red dirt. It wasn't always like this. When English speakers first arrived, the soil wasn't this thick red clay. There was another layer on top, about a foot deep on average. But 200 years of intensive farming exposed the ground to erosion, which was almost certainly the worst in North America. The original topsoil washed away, leaving the red clay subsoil behind. Now to an extent, this happened all along the North American frontier, as woods and grasslands gave way to farms and pastures. So why was it so extreme in the Deep South? Was it something about the land, or something about the people? Should we Southerners be ashamed of our red dirt? Let's try to find out. From Birmingham, Alabama, this is Deep South History. I'm your host, Robert P. Collins. Episode 2, Red Dirt. Red dirt is a symbol of the Deep South. You'll find it in Southern literature, Southern memoirs, country music, at tourist sites from North Carolina to Texas, you can buy t-shirts that claim to have been dyed reddish-brown using local red clay. They're souvenirs, but they seem to be pitched mainly toward Native Southerners. They invoke red dirt as a sign of home, of where we come from. Of course, these shirts are called dirt shirts. Two things before we go on. First. The Deep South is not the only place in the United States where you'll find eye-catching red dirt, or dirt shirts. That red color is caused by iron oxide, and iron is the single most common element in the Earth's crust. You can buy yourself a dirt shirt to commemorate the red desert at Sedona, Arizona, or the old red soil of Kauai, Hawaii, or the red prairie in Oklahoma. Second, I'm not saying the entire Deep South lies on top of red dirt. It doesn't. You won't find red clay in the Mississippi Delta's black soil prairies. You won't find it in the crescent-shaped zone of rich soil called the Black Belt that traces the ancient shoreline of a 100 million year old sea across Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. Some deep south soils are sandy, like in my father's hometown. In other places where the topsoil is washed away, you'll find clay that is white or yellow or green no less striking than the red, and often equally a sign of radical erosion in just the last two centuries. But on the Piedmont especially, it's red clay almost everywhere. The southern Piedmont is a broad, hilly plateau running between the southern mountains and the coastal plains, in the Carolinas down to Georgia and Alabama. Piedmont is a condensed Italian name meaning foot of the mountains. The Piedmont is the most populous part of the Deep South, and it's where most of the tobacco and cotton has been grown. Now at this point you may be asking, is this guy really going to do a podcast episode about dirt? The answer is no, I'm going to do two episodes. This is the first. But wait, this is a history podcast. What does dirt have to do with history? Well, for the last several thousand years, the great majority of our ancestors farmed for a living. We know this, but we seldom think about it deeply. Why would we? 
The routines of farming seem so uneventful. People who make history leave the farm and head to where the action is. And yet here we have evidence that the actions of our farming ancestors reshaped the environment to such an extent that we assume it has always been this way. Seeing as you and I are unlikely to know much about tilling the soil, and kudos to those of you who do, let's spend a minute on the basics. What is soil? Is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? The first impulse is to say mineral and shut up, but I think it's helpful to describe soil as the meeting place of all three, mineral, vegetable, and animal. Soil comes from old rock that has been worn down by wind, water, or sun, losing volume in the process. Rock is reduced to gravel, then to smaller pieces like sand, dust, and microscopic particles that form clay. When these things combine with water and organic matter, you have soil. For a while, the minerals that were once in the rock largely remain in the soil, becoming nutrients for all kinds of plants. This is where the vegetable and animal parts come in. Animals and plants all drop things in the dirt throughout their lives. Dung, shells, leaves, bark, hair, scales, all fall to the ground and become part of the soil, adding carbon and nutrients that plants can use. When animals and plants die, most of what's left is either consumed or decomposed. The last remnant merges with the soil, and there are living things, worms and other small beings, most of them too small to see with the naked eye, that become a functional part of many soils. Much of this was still unclear to our ancestors. When settlers gazed with appraising eyes on southern land, they mostly judged the fertility of the soil by the trees or grasses that were already growing on it. When they did examine the soil, they didn't see red, or they only saw it in the sides of ditches or bluffs where the subsoil was exposed. Lieutenant James Casey, while spying on Indians in the Deep South for the War Department in 1790, reported that in the Creek Nation, the soil is of a dark brown color with a deep strata of red or brown clay. That dark brown topsoil is the layer that we have lost. Spies and land speculators had their methods for efficiently judging the worth of large tracts of Indian land. They believed that the best land worth the highest price was bottom land beside rivers and streams. There the soil was rich and drought was seldom a problem. Rich men organized companies and worked their connections to get early access to these bottom lands. The second best land was thought to be the mixed hardwood forest on higher ground. True, the land was not very level and might be challenging to plow. But the presence of oak and hickory trees, so it was thought, proved that the land was well watered. As for the flat pine forests, with their carpets of pine needles regularly swept by wildfire, these were considered barely adequate land where crops would probably lack for water. Only a desperate man would settle there. In hindsight, these generalizations were far from perfect. Settlers who snapped up land in the rolling hills of the southern Piedmont might congratulate themselves for securing good land. But they faced a difficult time getting that good land to stay good for very long. 
some of them already suspected they had a problem on their hands. They had seen what happened in Virginia. As the oldest of the southern colonies, Virginia was first to see adverse effects of intense cotton cultivation. Soil rapidly lost its fertility and began to wash away at an alarming rate, leaving deep gullies in the hillsides. By the 1830s, we begin to see southern agricultural reformers publishing pamphlets and books warning of the damage wrought by erosion. Steps had to be taken, they warned, or most of the South might become a wasteland. But land was cheap. As the Indians in the Deep South retreated slowly westward, the land they surrendered looked to white men like a Garden of Eden, just waiting to be tilled and made fruitful. The simple answer to Virginia's woes was to take up new fresh land, especially on the well-watered woodsy Piedmont. But wait a minute, what about these slowly retreating Indians? Hadn't they been farming the Deep South for a long time? They had indeed, but by the late 1700s, Americans were inclined to dismiss the Indians as poor, backward, and ignorant, even when it came to knowledge of their native land. Indians in the Deep South mostly raised crops beside streams, seldom venturing to clear forests and expose more soil. To white men, this seemed a timid and unimaginative way to farm, even if it was taking place on the bottomlands, the most desirable land. Still, in their judgment, the Indians weren't making the utmost use of the land. James Casey, the American spy, griped in his 1790 report that the beauty of the southern forests and the richness of the land only caused him pain. He saw it, quote, as a forlorn rude desert, which with a little labor might be made to blossom like the rose. Not only were they slow to exploit their land, the Indians, in the judgment of white men, planted their fields incorrectly. For one thing, the Indians didn't pull up all the weeds in their cornfields, as if the weeds served some purpose. And instead of planting seeds in straight rows, like civilized men, Indians made little hills of dirt and planted corn and beans together, letting bean vines grow up the corn stalks, as if mixing the two plants might help them both. Which it does, as the Indians knew from experience. But to white men, any unfamiliar Indian practice seemed wrong. Besides, women were in charge of the fields, and how could that be right? It was bad enough that Indian men took off for weeks at a time to go hunting. And when southern Indian men and boys did work in the fields, it was at the direction of their wives and mothers. To white observers, this was an unmanly and irresponsible way to live. Making women bear the responsibility for food crops? But each time the Indians surrendered some territory, land buyers put a high value on abandoned Indian farmland, which they called old fields. No matter what they said about male laziness and female mismanagement, white buyers learned that they could count on the Indians to leave tilled land in a state of useful fertility. But surely, white men could do a lot better. The Indians should watch and learn. And the sound of axes echoed in the hills. 
White settlers tackled the uneven land of the Piedmont, stripping the blanket of greenery off the dark brown soil, exposing it to steady rains and violent storms. The result, give it a century and a half, and you get the gullied red clay lands that have come to symbolize the Deep South. Why didn't it happen everywhere? After all, settlers in almost every part of the Americas cleared land and exposed the soil. American row crop agriculture was intensive, far more so than anything this continent had seen before. But this was true in every region where pioneers cleared the woods, so why did the South suffer more damage? The answer is that southern soil is different. Even that brown topsoil that Lieutenant Casey described in 1790 was pretty poor stuff. Compared to most soils, it was highly weathered. In other words, it had been roughly handled by the hot climate and heavy rainfall. The soil minerals that most plants depend on were largely leached out of this soil. Any good soil depends on fresh organic matter that adds nutrients like nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. But in the heat and humidity of the Deep South, these nutrients just don't last as long. The result is that with a few choice exceptions, the soils in the Deep South are like tropical soils, acidic, poor in nutrients, and easily exhausted when farmed. Also like tropical soils, most Deep South soils are unusually vulnerable to erosion. They depend on a blanket of vegetation to keep them from washing away in the rain. And rainfall in the Deep South is impressive. It's not as rainy as Seattle, not quite. But when you set aside the parts of the continental United States that are actual temperate rainforests, namely the Pacific Northwest Coast and the Southern Appalachian Mountains, then the wettest places left are mainly in the Deep South. Not only is the rainfall heavy, it can be unpredictable and violent. The Gulf states are regularly buffeted by hurricanes, some of the most violent storms on planet Earth. Thunderstorms often come with high winds and the occasional tornado. What a farmer wants from a rainstorm is a good soaking that leaves the soil where it is. A thunderstorm doesn't care. A thunderstorm, especially one that follows a hot dry spell, can do a very effective job of washing away a lot of soil. So those farmers who congratulated themselves on securing some Piedmont land actually hit a trifecta of bad news. First, the brown soil covering that red subsoil was poorer than it looked. Second, when exposed to rain, especially on uneven Piedmont terrain, this soil was unusually vulnerable to washing away. And third, the stormy regional weather was unusually efficient at washing away vulnerable soil. In other words, the southern Piedmont was not the best country for farmers. How long have we known that the red clay of the Piedmont used to be subsoil? Many of our ancestors probably could have told us because they saw the transformation advance during their own lifetimes. Agricultural reformers in the 1830s and after sounded the alarm about it. But the fact didn't appear in scientific literature until 1905, 
and it didn't really gain nationwide attention until 1931, during the Great Depression. That's when scientist Hugh Bennett described a new soil type he named Cecil Clay Loam, which he defined as the product of man-induced erosion. It was the first scientific name for Deep South Red Dirt, and it came with the recognition that this was not a natural occurrence. No one had yet measured the damage caused by erosion, but the anecdotal evidence was overwhelming. Photographers working for the federal government took stunning pictures of a deep south that was riven by gullies deeper than a man is high, showing how rainwater had carried away the good soil, leaving a red wasteland behind. Erosion and gullying troubled many local regions of the Deep South. In the Black Belt and Blackland prairies as far west as Arkansas, erosion exposed an olive green subsoil called Sumter Clay. In southwest Georgia, erosion triggered by human activity made a spectacular canyon up to 150 feet deep, that's about 48 meters deep, which local promoters tried to pass off as a natural phenomenon. Providence Canyon, a network of gigantic gullies that didn't exist in the early 1800s, is still growing today, a living monument to environmental catastrophe. Erosion had been a problem for generations, but during the New Deal in the 1930s, it was recognized for the first time as a nationwide problem that called for some attempt at remediation. The Oklahoma Dust Bowl captured the most attention, staggering wind erosion of recently exploited prairie land which drove farm families into destitution and an itinerant life. But at the same time, thousands of southern farmers and farm workers, both white and black, were giving up on farm life and heading for towns and cities. There were no jobs, but compared to the rural deep south, there was more hope of a change for the better. At the urging of Congress, scientists made their first attempt to accurately measure the extent of erosion and gullying of farmland throughout the 48 states. A review of their data in 1936 found that the southeast was disproportionately harmed. Another estimate from this period was that soil loss from Piedmont farmland ranged from 4 to 18 inches, that's about 10 to 45 centimeters in depth. Later estimates fell within the same range. Along with this new insight, based on new data, came a new narrative about Southern agriculture, a story of sin and retribution that is still with us today. Before I go on, I need to draw a contrast between plantation owners, or planters for short, and plain farmers. The Deep South in the 1800s had a very uneven distribution of wealth, even if we set aside the enslaved and the free people who owned no land. Where a farm household could supposedly do well on 40 acres and a mule, a planter was likely to have 400 acres planted in cotton alone in any given year. Those 400 acres could be spread over some 5,000 total acres, perhaps on more than one plantation. With so much land, and hundreds of enslaved farm workers at his disposal, the planter could rotate his cotton crop to different fields with each season, allowing the soil to rest and recover its fertility. To make sure this happened, he could, if he pleased, buy livestock, 
hire carpenters to build a barn, and have slaves spread manure on the fields to enrich the poor soil. He could put some of his land in pasture, maybe build a distillery, do some horse breeding for the prestige of it, and appoint some slaves to train and ride his racehorses. This might well occupy more of his time than the cotton that is the principal basis of his fortune and which he hires someone else to manage. He can afford it. Leisure was important to the members of the Southern plantocracy. Our planter might pursue an eccentric hobby such as collecting china or running agricultural experiments or even writing history. Of course he'll have he has to have at least one carriage with some fine horses, and he'll spend much of his time traveling with the wife to visit kin or attend exclusive social events. All this luxury and leisure was the antebellum version of living your best life. This was true independence, having full command of hundreds of people, people whom it was gauche to call slaves, owning an enterprise that traded across the ocean, spending like a prince on imported luxuries and gifts, hiring the services of Yankee artisans who went from one plantation to the next like wandering minstrels, hosting guests in a lavish style that gave us the term Southern hospitality. From the Revolution to the middle of the 1800s, this was what most Americans saw when they looked at slaveholders successful men leading happy lives of leisure and influence. Americans understood that this glittering edifice rested on a foundation of brute force and cruelty, chattel slavery in the land of the free. As far as I know, no one was comfortable with the paradox. Almost half the states gradually abolished slavery. In the 1780s, patriot veterans, even from the South, considered doing the same and some of them seem to think it was just a matter of time. We'll come back to this to consider how and why slavery survived and expanded in a land of liberty. But for a while, as it was happening, the success and power of the planters drew much of the attention. I see them as the celebrity CEOs of the 1820s, widely criticized but presumed to be gifted and entitled to a greater than normal say in public affairs. For today, we'll ignore the planners and focus on the majority of Deep South farmers who had smaller farms and no slaves. Not having thousands of acres to play with, these were the ones who were likely to change their address in search of better soil. These are the farmers whom later generations have accused of abusing the land with their soil mining. Let's return to the 20th century and have a look at the indictment. Count 1. The grand jury charges Deep South farmers with occupying virgin land that was ideal for farming and nearly ruining it with their greed, laziness, and cruelty, as shall be set forth hereafter. Immediately we run into problems. The Deep South was neither virgin land nor was it ideal for farming. It's true, American farmers in the Deep South did cut trees and strip vegetation from soil that, for all they knew, had been untouched since the dawn of creation. But as we've seen, that soil was vulnerable 
and thus very challenging even for a diligent farmer. Count two. Deep South farmers use primitive tools and backward farming techniques. There's some truth to this, but it doesn't prove that the farmers were unusually neglectful or lazy. Southerners did rely more on hoes than on plows, and their plows tended to be simple one-horse devices that didn't plow very deep. This was an advantage when you were working new ground that was still studded with roots and stumps of felled trees and rocks. And when some Piedmont farmers did try heavier plows that mixed subsoil with the topsoil, they got poor results. They also had the problem of keeping draft animals such as oxen to pull the heavy plow, and those animals didn't necessarily thrive in the hot, humid climate. In fact, some agricultural historians argue that reformers bear most of the blame for introducing well-intentioned but ultimately destructive techniques. But this categorical defense of Deep South farmers is probably just as overstated as the indictment is. Count three. Deep South farmers greedily planted cotton everywhere they could, regardless of the long-term consequences. Sometimes they did, but they also learned from their mistakes. The problem with this indictment is that it assumes that 10 generations of Deep South farmers made essentially the same mistakes for 300 years. And this is based on nothing better than anecdotal evidence, while ignoring evidence that, at times, Deep South farmers did more than their northern and western peers to rotate crops and give the land a break. They just didn't always do it precisely as experts thought they should. Sometimes proven methods have to be adapted to a local environment. Count four. Deep South farmers practiced soil mining, treating the land like a commodity to be consumed rather than as a renewable resource. They planted cotton until the soil was exhausted, then abandoned the entire farm to erosion and moved to new ground where they repeated the cycle. It's true, this happened quite often from around 1790 to the 1830s, not least because Georgia and other Deep South state governments handed out former Indian land with a prodigal hand. Faced with the disappointing performance of erosive Piedmont soil, many farmers did behave like miners, trying a new stake in the hope of striking it rich this time. A significant number of settlers did move from exhausted land in Virginia and the Carolinas down to converge on former Indian land in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. When some of this land was played out in their judgment, migrants descended like a swarm on Louisiana, and Arkansas and Texas. But in 1837, as cotton prices collapsed amid a financial panic, one that lasted for years, Deep South farmers had to adjust. For some, at least, that meant staying in place and figuring out a way to keep their land productive. One of the greatest benefactors of 19th century Deep South agriculture is anonymous. It's the person who first introduced the African cowpea as a forage crop and taught Deep South farmers how to make best use of it. The cowpea has many varieties. The best known is the black-eyed pea. No one knows how these plants came to North America. 
but however it happened, they were soon taken up by Indians and enslaved Americans. Like other legumes, that is peas and beans, the cowpea has the gift of capturing nitrogen from the atmosphere and transferring it with the help of bacteria into the soil. Today we know that nitrogen is an essential plant nutrient, a nutrient that cotton and corn are both bad about using up. Of course, the role of nitrogen, not to mention the nitrogen-fixing behavior of legumes, was still a mystery until late in the 19th century. What was known much earlier as traditional African knowledge was the value of planting cowpeas together with corn or cereal crops. And the holder of that knowledge, whoever first relayed it to an American farmer in the Deep South, was probably either African, like the cowpea itself, or Native American from a culture that had independently discovered the benefit of planting peas or beans alongside your staple crop. Indians had their own native species of legume, but they took to the cowpea as well, apparently a good deal earlier than white Americans did. And as we've seen, it was their long-standing practice to let the pea vines or bean vines grow up the corn stalks, as if mixing the two plants was good for both of them which it was. So, okay, the cowpeas help nourish the soil with the same stuff that both corn and cotton are good at depleting. That's fine. But is that all? No. This double cropping method also helped protect that Piedmont soil that is so vulnerable to washing away. Not only did the pea plants restore fertility to the soil, their vines, leaves, and pods covered the ground well, like an umbrella in heavy rain. When the weather turned hot and dry, the cowpea umbrella shaded the soil and helped retain moisture. Later in the season, after the corn was harvested and the peas were picked, the rest of the pea plants made good fodder for pigs, with none of the side effects caused by certain exotic grasses that experts imported for livestock in the 1800s. And as long as those pigs are having a meal in the cornfield, they're also manuring it, at no expense of time or labor for the farmer, making the intrinsically weak and stingy soil a little richer and healthier. Not a bad system overall. Eventually, this information made its way to southern agricultural reformers, who urged farmers all over the South to plant cowpeas together with their corn. It was the return of a technique southern Indians had used and that American observers had scorned, planting pea and bean vines in the cornfield. Can we know for sure how many Deep South farmers took up this new method, rather than just assuming that their soil would wear out like always? We really can't. Census data from the middle of the 1800s, though, are suggestive. Despite their reputation with 20th century authors, Southern farmers in the 19th century actually appear to have been perhaps more committed to crop rotation than their peers in the North and West. In the 1860 census, most American farmers kept about two-thirds of their farmland in cultivation. In the South, it was only about one-third. This doesn't prove that the rest of the Southerners' land was typically lying fallow, but it does suggest that we should be slow to accept the traditional indictments against Deep South farmers, especially the notion that there was something wrong with them. The evidence against them, 
is only hearsay. The historian Carville Earle describes a long timeline for Southern agriculture, from the 1600s to the 1900s, in which destructive phases alternate with constructive periods of what he calls recyclic shifting cultivation. Each constructive phase at least partly repairs the damage caused in the prior destructive phase. Today, in this history of Deep South Red Dirt, I've only managed to bring you up to the middle of the 1800s. So next time, we'll have one more turn on that destructive, constructive wheel. You know, it'd be great if we could all get off the carousel while we're in a constructive relationship with our land and just stay that way. But I guess that's one of those challenges that can't be permanently solved. So today we've seen how clearing the Piedmont forest exposed the fragile soil to erosion, sending tons of dirt downhill and downstream, exposing the red clay underneath. So where did all that dirt go? Out to sea, eventually, right? But what if the sheer volume of eroded dirt was too great for streams to carry away? What happened then? 200 and more years ago, the bottomlands, besides streams, were the lands most coveted by settlers, both for farming and for building a home. So why do those same lands often look so uninviting today? What lies buried under all that dirt? And why is it risky for me to stand on the bank of the creek? Next time on Deep South History, where did it all go? Creeks and bottomlands. Hey y'all, thanks for listening. And thanks this time to John in Athens, Georgia, who heard the first episode and asked, why did you mention the Piedmont? I have no answer. I mean, I was born and raised on the Piedmont. I hope I've made amends with this episode. John's also the one who introduced me to Paul Sutter's very fruitful and beautifully written book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Gullies. I never thought I would be so surprised and moved by a book about soil. Sutter's book convinced me that one of my top priorities for this podcast would be to talk about dirt. There will be a link to the book in the show notes at deepsouthhistory.com. John also gave me some tips to help make sure I wouldn't make a fool of myself when venturing to talk about soil science. If I made a fool of myself anyway, it's not his fault. Thanks to my 20 or so listeners who've waited patiently as I carried this script around for many months. There's more than one reason for the long delay, but I promise not to repeat it next time. The next podcast, which is pretty much already written, episode 3, will say a little more about Deep South Dirt as well as cotton, floods, and lost mill towns. I mean lost as in, wasn't there a town here? Not a village, I mean a town with a factory. How can a town just vanish? Then I think the following three podcasts will tell the story of the Creek Indian Nation, a corrupt treaty, the Marquis de Lafayette, and a notorious killing in 1825 that caught the attention of the national press and the U.S. Senate. If you've read Mike Duncan's new biography of Lafayette, Hero of Two Worlds, consider these episodes a supplement. And if you like what you've heard so far, tell people. Just send them to deepsouthhistory.com. 
And if you have feedback for me or if there's a subject you want me to look into, use the comment form at DeepSouthHistory.com. And say, if you find yourself in southwest Georgia, stop by Providence Canyon State Park near Lumpkin in Stewart County. It's a little out of the way, but worth it. According to the interpretive ranger there, they've counted 43 different colors in the sand walls of the canyon. If you go, why not send me an email about your visit? Podcast at DeepSouthHistory.com Until next time, y'all take care. Thank you.